Thanks, guys. We're going to spend some time now looking at the Bible together. What we believe here is that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus. One of my favorite stories is in Mark chapter 2, where Jesus has some people lowering a guy down through the roof, literally, to see Jesus. And so the, the picture of what I'm trying to do when we look at the Scripture together is an image of what the friends of this guy were doing when they were lowering this sick man into Jesus' presence. They literally ripped open the roof to lower their friend down in to see Jesus. And so we talk about this phrase sometimes in kind of preaching nerd world called expository preaching. Okay, have any of you ever heard this phrase before, expository preaching? So the, the root word of that is expose. The idea is that we're going to crack this open and we're going we're gonna to kind of peel back the layers to expose Jesus in the text. And so we're opening up the Bible together. We're looking at the book of Genesis right now as a church at the Joseph Stories. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open that up. We're going to pull the roof back on this thing, look inside, see Jesus in these stories. In the Joseph Stories, we see this figure who in, in the context of Genesis is probably thinking himself, and others may be thinking, is this the Savior? Is this the one that was promised? Now, we live on this side of history. We know, no, he wasn't the ultimate Savior. He was one of the, the kind of junior Saviors along the way that God sent to his people to fulfill his promises. Ultimately, that Savior is Jesus. But as these stories are unfolding, we're, we're seeing Joseph um, serve and love others and do the kind of things that Jesus did. He wasn't perfect. He wasn't Jesus. But he's showing us what Jesus is going to be like in a lot of ways. So in these Joseph stories, we're going to see God's purposes in a dysfunctional world. Um, How many of you live in a dysfunctional world like I do? Some of you? Okay, a few of you do. Um, Man, this world is crazy. Um, Joseph is a great example to us of what it's like to live in the same world that we live in, where we're betrayed, where we're hurt, where we've been abused, where we've been beat up. And that's the kind of world that Joseph lives in. And in these stories, we're going to see that, that God is still there even in tough times. So this week we're in chapter 40, in chapter 40, and we're calling it Joseph Waits. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Genesis chapter 40. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some black Bibles under these chairs. Grab one of those Bibles. I want to get you in the habit of opening it up. I know it's old-fashioned. You've got one on your phone probably you could use. That's fine if you want to do that. But if you don't have a Bible, just grab that black thing. It's got pages and everything. Open it up. We're going to be around page 32 in that Bible close to page 32, 33. It's Genesis chapter 40. We're calling it Joseph Waits because Joseph is waiting and waiting and waiting for the promises to be fulfilled. And again, this is going to reflect what we've experienced. And God, you've said good things are coming, but when? As the psalmist says in the Psalms, how long, O Lord? He's waiting. Now, we don't know exactly how long Joseph was in Potiphar's house, where he ends up, where we were in in chapter 39 last week, and we don't know how long he's in the prison, but we know by the math you can do with the stories and the different chapters, we know he's about 11 years in both of those places. So it's a long time of being a slave in Potiphar's house and being in the prison. Just a long time of waiting. God had given these promises to Joseph's great-grandfather Abraham. God gave promises to his grandfather Isaac. God gave promises to his father Jacob, and God gave these dream promises to Joseph, and he's still waiting to see these things fulfilled, just like we're often waiting to see God make everything right. So let's read the text. Um, Oh, I had a story about waiting. Sorry, I forgot about this. My mind is just going like crazy this morning. So let me share this story with you real quick. Waiting. 
uh, I have a Volvo, old Volvo, 1995 Volvo. Some friends helped me out with it. It was like a garage-kept car that, you know, didn't have very many miles, and a friend helped me fix it up, and it's been really great. But around the first week of July, uh, a part broke on this Volvo, and that part is what made the air conditioning work in my car. Um, so if you, like, haven't had an air conditioning in your car for a couple of years, I'm sorry, this story will have no meaning to you, but for most people in Texas, to survive, like to live, you, you have to have air conditioning in your car. And I've kind of got, I'm kind of old and middle-aged now. I've gotten spoiled. I've had an air conditioner for a lot of years. And my air conditioner has been broken since the first week of July until just last week. Like, it was like eight or nine weeks of just waiting. And they kept saying, the part is on order. The part is on order. The part is on order. I kept calling back. And they're like, well, it hasn't come in yet. You know, I think they were mining the ore and shaping, the, you know, it's like a little part this big, shaping the part, um, and I was just waiting. And I, I share that story because it's just a little example of how you can just be so frustrated. I found my t- myself at times getting really angry. I don't know about you. Again, some of you are not from Texas, and so probably you can relate to this. When it's really hot, it just makes you mad sometimes, right? Like, I would just, I just feel mad. I just get in my car for five minutes to drive across town, and I'm just dripping with sweat. It kind of grosses me out. You know, I'm just completely wet, and I feel angry inside. I share that story because in the Joseph story, he was enduring something way worse than going without an air conditioning. And so I just wanted to offer that up and say, you know what? I sometimes am waiting through difficult circumstances, and I don't make the best of it. In this story, we see Joseph waiting in hard circumstances through actually much worse circumstances than not having an air conditioning, and he's making the most of the circumstances. So that's really what the question I want to set up for us is like, when we're waiting, when we're in that tough situation, what are we going to do with it, right? Like, what are you going to do with the hard situation you're in right now? Are you just going to be mad? Are you just going to be bitter? Are you going to do something with that? Are you going to make the most of the circumstance you're in? So chapter 40, verse 1, it says, Sometime after this, don't know how long, but he's roughly in these two places for about 11 years. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. So greatest empire of the time, Egypt. This is the king, and these guys serve that king, and they've made him mad. Verse 2, Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer, and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody, and one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Just to build a little suspense, I'm going to leave you hanging, okay? I'm just going to put a pin in it right there. We're going to wait for a minute. I'm going to pray for our time because, as I said, I, I believe that God is speaking to us here. I believe that God is speaking to our circumstances. That we're going through the weird things that's happening in our life right now, and he's wanting to remind us that he's still here. He's still with us. So let me pray and ask his spirit to meet us during this time. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you promise us that you speak through your word, and we thank you that you have sent your Holy Spirit 
to open eyes, to open minds, and we pray that your spirit would be with us now. We pray that your spirit would give those of us that are skeptical a desire to hear from you. We pray that your spirit would would give those that are broken and bitter a, a new hope, that you would refresh our hearts. Pray for those of us that want to learn, God, that you would open our eyes. Meet us here, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this story, again, the, the context is, is Joseph Waits. It's a long time. He's, he's been a slave in Potiphar's house. He gets betrayed. Now he's in the prison. That's where he is. I know some of you haven't been here for the other stories as well. Um, before he became a slave in Potiphar's house, he was beat up and sold into slavery by his brothers who threw him into a pit. One of the things that I wish we had more time to do is just kind of stop and smell the roses along the way with these stories. I encourage you to go back and read the stories on your own. Uh, reread them, read them in different translations, because there's a lot of really cool artistry that appears in the stories. A little thing that'll show up in this text today is Joseph says, man, I, was, I didn't do anything wrong, and I'm in this pit. He's going to call the prison a pit. Well, what do you think that's supposed to remind us of? Well, it's supposed to remind us of a few chapters back when his brothers beat him up and threw him into a literal pit, right? So this prison's probably an underground dungeon that he calls a pit. Previously, he's been in a pit, you know, in his mind, he's probably thinking the kind of thing that you and I think when we're going through hard times, which is like, why does this keep happening to me? You see that? These echoes, these similarities in the story, right? Like his fancy robe is ripped off him by his brothers and he's thrown into a pit. And then later on, he's accused of sexual abuse by Potiphar's wife and his garment is ripped off him and now he's thrown into a pit, right? So Joseph is going through the same thing that you and I often go through when a bad thing happens. We're like, man, why does this keep happening to me? Like again and again, have you ever thought that? Like, man, I can't get a break. Like it keeps happening. There's like repetition. There's some kind of theme here. I don't understand. And so we are to connect with Joseph. We're to be able to put ourselves in the story as we see what he's saying here. So Joseph is waiting for a long time. And the first thing that I want us to see during his waiting, is that Joseph pays attention to others. If you are like me, and you're feeling like, why does this keep happening to me? If you're sensing, I'm getting wronged again and again. If you're thinking, man, this is just unjust, this is unfair, it will be really easy for you to become angry and bitter and not recognize that that you are God's messenger in whatever horrible situation you're in, right? That God could use you to reflect his grace in the world. The way this is set up in the book of Genesis overall is that God created humanity to reflect his image in the world. That's our job. That's what we're designed for. And man, when we're in a crummy situation, we, f- we forget that so quickly, right? Like, man, this isn't fair. I can't reflect God's image. I can't show his love, his justice in this situation. This is an unfair situation. And we check out mentally, right? And so Joseph is this beautiful example, I think, that reflects Jesus. It shows us what Jesus is like. Because we don't believe that Joseph is perfect and never sins, but we see him trusting God. And because he trusts God, he acts out God's grace and becomes God's presence in the world. That's the kind of thing that God calls on us to do as well. So let's look again at the story. It says, sometime after this, again, it's about 11 years roughly that he's in Potiphar's house and he's in prison. So sometime after this, when he's been thrown in prison, the cup bearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. So world's greatest empire, 
Pharaoh is what he's often called, the king of Egypt, the emperor, so to speak. He's a very important, very powerful man. If you make him mad, you get thrown in prison. That's kind of how the law worked back then. And I want to emphasize for you who a cupbearer and who a chief baker were in an ancient uh, culture. Uh, We saw this when we studied the book of Nehemiah, because Nehemiah was also a cupbearer. But what a cupbearer would do, and a baker had a similar task as well, kind of second in line and worked with them as well. But the cupbearer would bear, would carry the cup. In some translations, it's called butler, but he's the one that would serve, right? And so he would bring the wine to the king. And so it'd be easy to just stop there and just think, oh, he was a waiter, right? Like he was just a waiter. A lot of us have waited tables before, and that's not really like chief of staff to the president of the United States. It's not that important of a job, right? But in this context, it was. So what I want you to see is what we read as waiter, he's just serving the wine, was actually like head of security. This would have been like the chief of the CIA or something, right? Like he's part of the inner circle because in the ancient culture, he would drink the wine and then hand it to the king so the king knew the wine wasn't poisoned, okay? So in order for the king to survive and not be taken over and killed and assassinated, he had a guy, his chief of security, called the cupbearer, and he would serve the wine, drink the wine first, and hand it off to him. And this cupbearer was part of the king's inner circle, and so he had all king's resources and money and assets and men that worked for him in the security business of the empire. So does that make sense? Am I setting that up for you to kind of bridge that cultural gap? So these guys were actually inner circle advisors, chief of security guys that had very important roles. Um, And so these are the guys that have offended the pharaoh. Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. There's another little side note. Again, we don't know all of the ins and outs. We don't get every detail. That's part of what makes stories interesting is things are just implied. Um, But here, it's returning to this phrase of the captain of the guard, and that that was the job that Potiphar had. So if you remember the previous chapter, Potiphar's wife accuses Joseph of attempting rape and sexual abuse, even though he had resisted her. And we talked about that last week. Sometimes when you do everything right, um, you can still get in trouble. And that's what happened to Joseph. You know, this is the thing that keeps happening to him again and again. He does the right thing, and then he's punished, and he suffers. But that guy was Potiphar. That was the captain of the guard. In the ancient world, if you were accused of, of trying to rape this guy's wife, you would have been killed. But Joseph's not killed. He's thrown in prison. And so we can only, again, it's an implication. We can only assume that Potiphar, the captain of the guard, actually still kind of trusted and loved Joseph. And because he was an important leader, he had to save face with his wife and this crazy marriage apparently he had, and so he threw Joseph in prison. But if he really believed his wife, he he would have killed Joseph. And so again, that's a lot of implication, but it's a kind of common sense implication we can make from the story. And so here... He is still over the area that Joseph is in prison. So the captain of the guard is in charge of, you know, all the guard or all the soldiers, and part of what's under his purview or under his command is this prison. And Joseph's in this prison that's still under Potiphar's uh, oversight. And so he puts these important people uh, close to Joseph. So again, another implication is maybe he's trying to help Joseph out, right? Like maybe he's trying to do a favor. He had to throw Joseph in prison, but maybe he's doing a favor like putting important people around Joseph, and maybe there could be a connection. Because we'll see later in the story that Joseph is thinking, hey, maybe these guys could help me get out of prison because they know the Pharaoh, they know the king. 
So again, these are implications we don't know for sure, but verse 4 it says, the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. So this is the first part where we get this concept of Joseph paying attention. Instead of just being bitter, he's paying attention. Now, at this point, we could just say, well, it was his job, right? Potiphar signed him. The captain of the guard said, you have to take care of them. So he's taking care of them. Okay, at this level, maybe he's just doing his job. Maybe he's just doing his duty. But the story gets, it gets a little better. There's a little more to it. It says in verse 5, And one night they both dreamed. The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. And when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. You see that? He saw that they were troubled. If you were just doing your job, I think guys are especially guilty of this, like, you don't notice if someone's troubled. You don't really care, right? Like, if you're just doing your job, you're like, that's not my job to notice if their faces are troubled. It's not my job to notice if somebody's sad, right? There's kind of a cop-out that we do sometimes when we're just doing our duty and we're just doing our job. But Joseph notices. Again, this is a way he shows us the character of God. This is a mark of Jesus repeatedly in the Gospels. Jesus sees people and has compassion. Jesus looks on people in their pain and then he heals them. Jesus notices us. Jesus pays attention to us. Do we pay attention to people like that? Or do we just do our job? Do we just do the minimum of what we have to do, right? I think that's really the question for us applicationally. So he pays attention. It says he, he saw He saw that they were troubled. Verse 7, so he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? So he sees, he's paying attention, and then he asks, what's wrong? And now now it's really getting messy, right? It's one thing to notice if someone is having a hard time. It's a whole other thing to open up that box of like, what's wrong? actually like reach out to somebody. So again, we see Joseph imaging God. That's the Genesis framework. Human beings are made to image God. Sin has ruined all of that. God comes in and makes all these promises to Joseph's dad, grandpa, great-grandpa. You know what? Humans, your job is to image me in the world, but you've messed all that up with sin. So we're going to come in and we're going to fix that. We're going to bless the whole world and we're going we're to remake the world so that humans can actually do what they're made to do. So humans can begin to image me and to represent my love and my justice and my grace in the world. And here we see Joseph beginning to do that. We see him noticing. We see him asking hard questions. Why, why are you upset? What's wrong? Why are you downcast? Why are your faces troubled? It's the way the different translations describe it. Um, I think this is a beautiful example to us. And it reminds me of something I went through when I was a young dad. I don't know, dads, if, you, if this has happened to you, but I remember often feeling like way out of my depth when I had young children. Um, it's a very kind of scary time because I, I feel like, again, I'm going to make some, some gender generalities here. Will you pardon me for that, right? I know they're not always true. But I think in general, women walk into parenthood a little more prepared than men, you know? Like there's just some, there's some things about the way our society is structured in general, right? Just culturally in general, that women are a little more prepared for that. Remember sometimes my kids would be sick, little kids, and my wife would just like instinctually do this thing where she'd put her hand on the child's head. Have you ever seen anyone do that? Like, why do you put a hand on someone's head? Like, what is that even about? Like, did you go to a class for that? I don't, I don't understand. 
Like, did you learn that in your babysitting club? I don't know how to do that. Like, my hands are clammy. Everybody feels hot to me. I don't know if they have a fever. You know, I don't. I just remember feeling very incompetent as a dad. But, but I want to give you hope. If, if you're a young, incompetent dad like I was once, um, I would kind of step out in faith. Um, I would watch people that seemed to know what they were doing. Like, my wife would, you know, she would pay attention. She would look. She would see. If they were sad, she would ask them. You know, like, she would... She would enter in, and so I would kind of begin to imitate that. I would begin to take those steps of, oh, I guess I should pay attention to these kids, right? Oh, I guess I should reach out to them. I should ask them if they're okay. I should, I should move towards them in love. And so I began to, to imitate that. And as I did that, I actually got better at it. So I just want to encourage you. I know some of you, I know you well enough to know you're really terrible at this, right? Like, you're bad. Um, but you can get better. That's what I want to encourage you. Like, like. You just kind of take those steps. You begin to notice people. You begin to look. One of my favorite books about what it means to love others, to see others, to pay attention to others, is a book about the life of Jesus called Love Walked Among Us. If you're looking to study more on who Jesus is, it's a great book. It's a book by Paul Miller. I've read it multiple times, read it with my kids and with some friends and stuff. Just a great book. It just kind of goes through the Gospels, and it just observes how Jesus loves other people. And one of the chapters talks particularly about paying attention about looking. And it, it, it kind of charts this out, how you'll see Jesus often before he interacts with someone, there's this first step that we forget about of he looked, he saw, and then he had compassion on them. And there's this title uh, Paul Miller uses for the chapter about this. He calls it this, looking shapes the heart. Looking shapes the the heart. What he's saying is, is as you kind of like step into this, as you try this stuff, as you try to represent God, it begins to shape your own heart. For one thing, on the negative side, you'll kind of quickly recognize how terrible you are at it, right? <laughs> like you, it'll drive you to pray. It'll drive you to just beg God to make you better at this. But also, just practically speaking, as you step out and as you look, as you pay attention, and as you see and as you know people, God's going to grow you in your ability to care for them and to image him in that situation. So I just want to dare you to step out in faith in those ways, to notice things that you're not really, quote unquote, responsible for, but to notice anyway. So, you know, it's my job just to feed them and make sure their cage is locked, right? No, but you care, right? I was talking about the prison, not my children. Okay, <laughs> just to clarify that. We didn't actually keep our kids in cages. I just want to make that public record, um, but I did feed them. Uh, but it's this is like, what is that next step of messiness that God may be, paying, uh, be calling you to take, right, of, of how you can kind of pay attention and see and pursue and ask? What does that look like in your life? Matthew nine thirty six. Jesus saw the crowds and he had compassion on them. Mark ten twenty one. Jesus looked at him and loved him. I grabbed a picture of a mom here wiping a kid's nose. I just thought that was an example of that. Um, what are those little steps you can take to see, to intercede? And just to clarify, like, don't do this with adults. Don't go and wipe another adult's nose. It's not really appropriate. But I was just using it as a figurative example of, of caring and paying attention to those around us, okay? Um, so next thing that we're going to see as we move through the story is that Joseph helps. He helps in a tangible way. And this one's going to be really counterintuitive, and it's going to be really weird, okay? Because Joseph is going to help with this weird thing of dream interpretation. 
And so what we want to guard against is getting totally derailed on like, well, maybe we need to start a dream interpretation class at the church and we need to just get all geeked out on dreams, right? Like that, that is going to be a temptation for us. But what I want you to see here is I believe the text is emphasizing that Joseph helps because he trusts that God is going to help him help, okay? So really it's about dependence on God. That's what this is about. It's all kind of weird details we're going to hear about the dreams. That's a part of the story. But the main point is that Joseph helps because he believe, believes that he has a God that helps. You see that? Joseph helps because God helps. So let's look at verse 20. No, nope, notes are out of order. Verse 8. Okay, look at verse 8. They said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So we're going to make a lot about this verse, and then we'll look at the details of the dreams. They say, we've had dreams, so they're upset because they've had dreams, and in their day and time and in their culture, they know that dreams are important. As a matter of fact, a lot of archaeology has been done, a lot of history has been done, a lot of research has been done. We found instructions on how to interpret dreams from the Egyptian people we found that they had whole schools of how to do dream interpretation. This is somewhat roughly equivalent to what we would call the modern psychiatry and counseling industry. They had official schools, certifications, diplomas. This was a big deal, right? Everybody knew that dreams were important, and everybody knew you had to go see the expert to have your dream interpreted. Just like in our modern day, everybody knows you need therapy, and you got to go to the experts to get your therapy, right? It's just kind of like a standard practice of their culture. But again, I would say what, what we want to recognize is that they're saying we can't get that expert. We're in prison, so we can't go to the expert dream counselor, right? Like he's not available, and so they're sad. So what does Joseph do? Joseph says, well, God, God can do everything, right? So like when you're in a situation and, and you know that there's some resource out there that could fix your problem, but you don't have the resource, and you're sad about that, what is, what is it that we call? We have this like cultural um, word for this thing that Joseph is suggesting here, right? So we're trying to translate between cultures. Joseph's guys are like, we need help. We don't have the help we need. There are professionals out there that could help us, but we don't have access to those professionals. We don't have the skills, we don't have the resources, we don't have the stuff we need. We're in an impossible situation. What is Joseph's answer? Joseph's answer is, God could fix that, right? What do we call that? That's like a really weird thing that only believers would do, where it's like, you have a problem, God could fix it. We, I'll, I'll give the answer. It's guess my brain time here. It's called prayer. Prayer. That's what we call that thing, where weird people like us that believe God is real and he intercedes in, in human lives, we believe that we can ask him for help. Now, we know that's tricky and messy, right? Like, that's dangerous to go into, especially with your secular friends that don't believe in prayer, because here's the danger. What if I say God could fix that and I'll pray for you, and then he doesn't answer the prayer the way they want him to or the way I want him to? Well, I would say, like Joseph, we just trust that God is sovereign, we trust God to deal with that. God's big enough to clean up his own mess. But we, like Joseph, can say, man, you don't have what you need. You're in trouble. I could ask God for you because God can do anything. 
Isn't it funny how that's like a core thing that we believe, but it sounds childish when I say it? Oh, I know God, and God can do anything. I, why don't I ask him for you? But when I say it out loud, when I say it that way, it sounds like this childish thing, but Jesus encourages us again and again to be like little children, to have a childlike faith, to just trust God with our problems. And God is big enough to say no, or maybe, or later, or just completely answer the issue at hand. In this story, he, he answers it. And actually, he answers it positively and negatively as, as we see it unfold. So let's look at the interpretation of the dream here. And so he said, God can give interpretations. So please tell them to me. He opens the door. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup. I placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Joseph said to him, well, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. And here's where he asks for help. He says, only remember me. Remember me. Don't forget me. Remember me, Joseph is saying. Please remember me. You're going to be back in Pharaoh's good graces. You're going to be once again inner circle, right-hand man to the most important emperor in the world right now. So will you remember me when it is well with you? And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should have put me into this pit. So I referenced earlier, he's using that pit word again. I'm, once again, I'm thrown into a pit unjustly, just like when my brothers did it to me. Verse 16, when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. So this is a little sad and funny. Um, he's like, he sees that this guy got a good dream interpretation, like it was going to go well with him. So he's thinking, oh, well, I'll share my dream, and then maybe I'll get a good interpretation, like maybe Joseph can pop out a good fortune for me as well. I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. So a lot of repetition, a lot of stuff is the same. Three, you know, three things equal three days. Head's going to be lifted up. Your head's going to lift it up. This guy's head, the cupbearer's head, was lifted up in honor. Baker's head is, is lifted up from his body, which is, that means he's dead, right? Like, that's a bad thing. Um, so it was... Very similar, but with this twist. Again, there's a lot of artistry here, just in the way the author's writing it. We believe all of this is true, but the, the author is showing us these beautiful alignments and showing us these things that make it a better story, that make it a more interesting story. And so here we see it's negative, and he's going to die, and of course, he's sad about that. It says, on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he, Pharaoh, made a feast for all his servants and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. Uh, servants. So parallelism, he lifted up both of their heads. Verse 21, he restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. And so the dream is fulfilled, just as Joseph said it would be. Um, so here what I want to emphasize is Joseph takes a huge risk. 
And I know this is scary, but this is what I'm asking you to do. And same thing, I'm feeling like God's been asking me to do more. And that is just to pray for people more. Just to say, I will, I will pray for you. I'll pray for you right now. Can I pray for you right in this moment? Man, there's something that you are troubled about. There's something that your face is downcast about. Could I pray for you? Whether that's a Christian friend or a non-Christian friend, here Joseph is taking a huge risk. He has not been to dream interpretation school. He does not know what he's doing. He has no reason to think that he could help out in this situation other than the reality that he knows the God of the universe. And so I just want to encourage you, again, not to get sidetracked with being obsessed with dreams and what dreams mean, but to be an intercessor in your friends' lives, to reflect the image of God and just step out and say, can I, can I help you? Because my God could do anything. I can at least pray for you. Can I pray for you? Is that okay with you? Is there something I could pray for you about? One of my favorite illustrations of what it means for us to help and reflect God's image in the world is the, is the idea of the moon. We just had a full moon a, a week ago, and the moon is just beautiful. I love going outside when there's a full moon and seeing the light. You know, it'll light up the ground in great darkness. It brings a lot of beauty. It brings a lot of light. There's just this incredible glow. Um, but, but if you've studied astronomy at all, you know the moon doesn't actually have any light of its own. What the moon is doing is it's reflecting the sun, right? That's what it's doing. And, and that's, again, in Genesis, what we are called on to do. Humanity is called to image God, to reflect God's presence around you. And I believe that's going to involve us taking risks like Joseph. It's going to involve us noticing and paying attention to people and then saying, hey, can I pray with you? Because I know God, and God often does amazing things and intercedes in people's lives. It's a risk because, again, God might say no to the prayer. God might say later to the prayer. God might not answer it in the way that we want to, but I think it's an example that we are to follow, to pray for people, to help people, to intercede, even, in, even when we're not an expert, even when we don't exactly know what we're doing. And that's the, that's the beautiful example we get with Joseph. So the last part of the story here, um, Joseph is forgotten. This is a sad part of the story. Again, this seems to keep happening to Joseph, he, he keeps feeling abandoned. He keeps feeling beat up. I think this is the part really where if, if you are in a really hard place right now, just know I'm, I'm praying for you. I know that's especially hard. It's like hard to really believe that God is there. It's hard to really believe that God exists. It's hard to really believe that God loves you when you're going through an especially difficult season. But I think these stories are helpful because we see other people who've gone through these hard times and we know from the story that God's not done with Joseph yet. So again, to, to reread uh, verse 20, Pharaoh has a party. He makes a big feast. He lifts up the heads of the two guys. Verse 21 says he restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had interpreted to them. So in biblical context, it is clear, again, like we saw in previous chapters, God is with Joseph. Man, Joseph doesn't have the certificate and training to do dream interpretation, but he relied on God, and God came through. He gave the exact right interpretation. God is with him, right? So there's this contrast we keep seeing. God is with him. God is with him. God is with him. Look at verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. I want you to see that both of those things can be simultaneously true. God is with you. And sometimes people utterly forget you. People betray you. People let you down in those moments when you're like, and I've been in this place, I've been, in, been a slave, I've been a prisoner for 11 years. When are they going to remember me? And that might be where you are right now. 
And I want to encourage you that God has not forgotten you. People may forget us, but God has not forgotten us. We've all been let down by people who have not fulfilled their promises, who have not helped us when they could, who have maybe gone another way to hurt us even. And that's exactly where Joseph was. But as the story continues, it becomes clearer and clearer that even though we're in this episode left with a cliffhanger, you know if you flip ahead, oh, there's 10 more chapters, right? There's more to the story. I want you to think about what does Joseph do in those moments where he feels utterly betrayed and utterly forgotten? I would assume that he's going to go back and remember the stories that his dad has told him about this God that is always with them, the stories that his grandpa's told him, the stories that his great-grandfather shared, the, the story of a God who promised that he would save the world, the, these covenants that God made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, these covenant promises that he said he would remember, that he would save the whole world, that he would send a Savior, that he would redeem people, that he would transform us sinful people into a people that actually image God the way that we're supposed to. He'd made those promises, right? He told Jacob, he gave Jacob this vision of the ladder between heaven and earth, right? God had give, given Jacob this amazing vision that someday, I know heaven and earth are divided right now, I know everything's broken and everything's messed up, but I'm, I'm going to build a ladder. I'm going to build a stairway between heaven and earth. We know later in the New Testament that's fulfilled in Jesus. We know the story of Isaac, Joseph's grandpa. Isaac was going to be sacrificed as a, as a sacrifice to God. God said, you owe me your life. But at the last minute, God says, no, don't sacrifice Isaac. Take instead this ram that I've provided. We see in that story that God provides. And he provides a substitute. And we know, because we know the rest of the story, that that ultimate substitute is Jesus. And in Joseph's great-grandpa's life, Abraham, God makes a covenant with Abraham where he divides these animal carcasses and covenant partners are supposed to walk through the blood together to say, if either one of us don't fulfill this covenant, may these punishments of death and blood come upon both of us. But God puts Abraham on the side and God passes through in this smoking fire pot between these dead animals. So God is the one saying in the covenant promise that he made to Abraham, Abraham, I already know you're not going to fulfill your side of the covenant, but the punishment's going to come upon me. It's a one-sided covenant. And again, we know that it's fulfilled in the new covenant in Christ who took the blood upon himself, who died in our place, who died on the cross for our sins. And so when we feel like everyone else has forgotten us, maybe they have, but God has not forgotten you. God is the one who remembers his covenant. A couple of weeks ago, I told you about this book, Redemption. And I told you that if you're going through a hard time, like Joseph is a great book, we've got stacks of them up here. If you guys want those, if you want to give a donation for them, great. If you don't have the money, you can just take them. Um, but these are books that help us to deal with, with these hard things that we're going through. And we've been abused or we're, we're struggling with addiction or whatever it may be, where we're starting to feel like maybe God has forgotten us. And this book points out this beautiful part of the next book of the Bible called Exodus. So when God embarks on rescuing his people from slavery. They were in slavery, right? How'd they get there? Well, Joseph and his brothers. That's how they got in Egypt. And they're in slavery, and they're crying out to God, and they're in pain, and they're in anguish. There's this beautiful little section of Scripture in Exodus 2, verses 23, 24, 25. It says that God remembers the covenant that he made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. 
God remembers. Man, we're going to forget stuff, and we're going to be forgotten, and we're going to be betrayed, but God will not forget. It says God remembered, and God saw them, and God knew, and he moved towards them in his love. That's the God that we serve. We serve a God who, when everyone else has forgotten us, God remembers. So just to give you a reference point for this, um, Joseph is remembering the promises in the past. We're remembering the promises that have been fulfilled in Christ. We have like this greater ability, right? There's a greater fulfillment. There are greater promises. There's a a biggerness to them, a a greater beauty to them. Um, When we are feeling like we're forgotten, we're to remember God's promises. So pardon this illustration, but this is a great illustration from literature here. There's a classic movie called Home Alone. Anybody ever seen the movie Home Alone? When, when Kevin comes to the point, it's, it's a great Christian allegory. When Kevin comes to the point of recognizing how all alone and forgotten he is, what does he do? He goes to church. He hears Christmas songs, and he goes to church. He confronts his fears, and the scary man that terrifies him turns out to be a messenger of grace, right? Uh, I share that. I know it's a little silly, but here's where I want to connect the dots for you. Some of you feel completely forgotten and abandoned, and you see God as that scary guy next door that you think is like burying bodies and wants to kill you, right? What I want you to know is, is God is not that terrifying figure. He is terrifying in his wrath towards our sin, but he's poured out his wrath on Christ. So we no longer have to be afraid of him. Jesus has absorbed the wrath of God. So every terror of God's perfection and God's holiness has been absorbed by his very own son. So God is remembering his covenant by by taking his anger and wrath towards our sin upon himself. And so he invites you and he invites me to trust him, to turn from our sin and entrust ourselves to Jesus, the God who remembers the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who paid the price for us to be set free from sin and death once and for all. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that when we feel utterly forgotten, we can remember that you remember us, that our name is graven on your hands. Thank you for giving yourself for us. Thank you for fulfilling all the promises in your new covenant through Christ's blood and resurrection. Help us to trust you. Lord, you know the, you know the crazy stuff we're going through. So we, we ask you for help. Help us to know that you're with us. Help us to see your purposes in this dysfunctional world. We pray in Jesus' name.